Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch Podcast. In this episode, the AFL-CIO breaks with its own history and speaks in support of Marxists. Democrats push to expand union privileges for forced dues and expanded mass strikes. And Harvard ousts a criminal defense attorney from a deanship for working as a criminal defense attorney. The AFL-CIO, America's largest federation of labor unions, illustrated the extent of its hard-left turn earlier this week when its official account tweeted a video by the openly pro-Marxist media production shop Means of Production, urging followers to, quote, seize the means of production, and promoting the classically Marxist view that the middle class does not, strictly speaking, exist. Earlier in the week, the Union Federation had tweeted an image of a guillotine to protest a campaign by Delta Airlines to encourage its employees not to unionize. The Union Federation deleted that tweet. I could be glib here and make an of course big labor or communist joke, but this is actually evidence of a major shift from 70 years of American labor union history. You see, up to and shortly following the Second World War, there was a major Soviet-backed attempt at communist infiltration into the American labor movement. But for reasons both ideological and pragmatic, the AFL and CIO, at the time separate organizations, pushed the Soviet sympathizers out of their ranks. Now, when I say ideological, I don't necessarily mean because they were capitalist, although some liberal union leaders like George Meany had nice things to say about free markets in the abstract. Even Walter Ruther, a socialist leader of the United Auto Workers, was anti-Soviet. Pragmatic motivation was an expected government crackdown on communists and union leadership. That became part of the Taft-Hartley labor reform law of 1947, more on which later. At the height of the Cold War, the AFL-CIO, now a unified federation, was actually the bastion of liberal anti-communism under leaders George Meany and Lane Kirkland. The most consequential effect of the AFL's commitment to opposing Soviet aggression was the AFL-CIO's refusal to endorse 1972 Democratic presidential nominee George McGovern, despite Kirkland's name being on his rival Richard Nixon's enemies list. Kirkland was a staunch anti-communist, he routed millions of dollars in financial support from the AFL-CIO to the Polish Free Trade Union Solidarity, which led the campaign for the overthrow of the Soviet-backed regime. But the big shift came in 1995, when John Sweeney, head of the then-AFL-CIO-affiliated SEIU, and reportedly a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, ousted Kirkland's chosen successor. Sweeney had the support of government worker unions, not reliant on a productive private economy, and far more aligned with state socialism. And that brings us to Means of Production's mini-lecture that the AFL-CIO shared, which was presented by a self-described Marxist roofer. The gentleman explained that there's no such thing as a middle class, since Marxism divides the world into owners of the means of production and workers. If that is now the position of the AFL-CIO, that would be a major shift. After all, much of union self-promotion is based on unions overstating their role in creating the American middle class. Potential consequences for American workers from the AFL-CIO's hard left turn are laid out in the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, a piece of legislation backed by Democratic congressional leadership and a number of presidential candidates that would substantially expand the power of the AFL-CIO and other labor unions. First and foremost on this union witch list is a functional repeal of all right-to-work laws, enforcing forced dues under the cloak of fair share. As we've noted before on this podcast, Unions whine about representing non-members, but exclusive representation is a legal privilege that the unions themselves demand to increase their cartel power over the workforce. 
The bill would also codify into law a number of decisions by the Obama administration's National Labor Relations Board that made union organizing easier, including changing the definition of joint employment, increasing the amount of private worker contact information given to an organizing union without worker consent, and shortening the unionization election campaign period. Perhaps most consequentially, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act would give unions vastly more power to disrupt the economy for an increased number of reasons, by legalizing strikes to coerce employers to stop doing business with other businesses, known in labor jargon as a secondary boycott. All told, the bill would effectively repeal important provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act, which Congress had passed after experiencing the effects of letting big labor have a gripping hand over the economy. In 1945-46, up to 10% of the workforce, 4.6 million workers then, equivalent to 16 million workers today, went on strike for at least some period. Things got so bad that President Harry Truman threatened to draft striking railroad workers into the army. In response to the labor unrest and the rise of communism, American voters broke 14 years of uninterrupted New Deal Democrat rule by electing overwhelming majorities for Republicans in the 1946 congressional and Senate elections. With support from renegade Democrats, these new majorities passed the Taft-Hartley reforms over President Truman's veto, a veto Truman cast despite reportedly telling a National Labor Relations Board member that Taft-Hartley was, quote, a pretty good law. The Taft-Hartley reforms enabled right-to-work laws, restricted secondary boycotts, and made numerous other changes to labor law to balance the interests of labor unions and individual employees. The new PRO Act isn't the first time that big labor has tried to repeal Taft-Hartley. After Truman's Democrats won in 1948, they failed to repeal and replace it, and the Johnson administration tried to override all right-to-work laws in the 1960s before failing at a Senate filibuster after a controversial New York City transit strike. If the PRO Act were enacted, the consequences would not only include lost jobs, but also economic disruption similar to that seen in Europe's periodic convulsions of labor unrest, or worse, disruption like America's immediate post-war experience or Britain's 1978-79, Winter of Discontent. And in our final item, we consider the troubling decision by Harvard University to strip law professor Ronald Sullivan of a faculty deanship, an advisory role for on-campus life. Sullivan is a prominent criminal defense attorney, credited with having exonerated over 6,000 wrongfully convicted people, and he was an advisor on criminal law issues to President Barack Obama. When Brooklyn, New York, wanted to institute a formal conviction review unit process to identify possibly wrongfully convicted people, the district attorney's office brought Professor Sullivan on to develop the program. But what sounds like an immaculate old-fashioned liberal record became controversial when Sullivan agreed to join the defense team for Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood producer currently facing charges of numerous sex abuse offenses, all of which he has denied. Sullivan taking on Weinstein as a client caused a student uprising against the professor, which the university administration capitulated to by removing Sullivan as faculty dean of Winthrop House, even after Sullivan quit Weinstein's defense team. This creates a couple of concerning developments. First, it is yet another case of university administrators caving to mob-like demands from students. During the debate over Sullivan's position, graffitied anti-Sullivan slogans were found on university buildings. Foundation for Individual Rights in Education's Robert Shibley called the administrator's decision, quote, another milestone in their campaign to engage in only the most shameful and cravenly political decision-making possible. But the second issue goes to the very fundamentals of our legal system. 
The government has vast investigative and police power that it can bring against the defendant, whether or not the defendant is truly guilty. Defense attorneys are responsible for holding the government to account, ensuring that either the government must prove all elements of its case beyond a reasonable doubt without violating the defendant's rights, or to ensure that a defendant admitting guilt receives fair consideration. In the words of National Review's Charles C.W. Cook, lawyers play a vital role in the system, and this is true whether their clients are evil or innocent. If we start exiling them for the sins of their clients, we will soon forget that. The idea that a defense lawyer is condoning the alleged crimes committed by his client, as opposed to demanding that the state fulfill its role in proving them, is disgusting and dangerous. Close quote. And while some progressive legal commentators have tried to dismiss Sullivan's ouster as a nothing burger, the Center for American Progress legal commentator Ian Milheiser belittled Sullivan as, quote, some glorified dorm RA, despite his prominence in criminal justice reform. Others have expressed concern. 52 Harvard Law School faculty signed a letter in support of Professor Sullivan. If we are going to have a criminal justice system worthy of a free country, it will rely on people like Professor Sullivan representing people we don't like who also might have done horrible things. Harvard missed an opportunity to teach the future masters of the universe a lesson in small-r Republican government, a lesson that dates back to before the Republic itself, when future U.S. President John Adams, himself a Harvard man, took the responsibility of defending the British soldiers involved in the Boston Massacre. That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, and if you have subscribed, thank you, and please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.